Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. In 2022, the American Heart Association issued a scientific statement laying out best practices for evaluating and managing patients who presented in hospital with a stroke. In today's episode of Neuropathways, we're talking with the lead author of this statement, discussing how it was derived, what it means, and how it can be adopted into practice. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute, and I am pleased to be joined by Dr. Amre New. Dr. New is a vascular neurologist and the regional chairman of the Department of Neurology in the Neuroscience Institute at Cleveland Clinic in Florida. Amre, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, Amre, you're fairly new to the Cleveland Clinic. Tell me a bit about yourself and your role in Florida. Yeah, so I'm a vascular neurologist, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, over the past decade, I've held different positions in Connecticut, um, both at the University of Connecticut as a core faculty, associate professor of neurology, uh, a residency site director, and the fellowship director for uh, vascular neurology at the University of Connecticut, and at Hartford Healthcare as a system and regional medical director for uh, stroke and supervascular disease. Very excited about the growth in Florida for Cleveland Clinic and the opportunity to to help lead an incredible team here to take the Cleveland Clinic care uh, to the community in Florida and beyond. Great. Well, welcome. So let's dive in today's topic. Transport us back in time and talk to us about the genesis for the best practices for evaluating and managing patients who present in hospital with a stroke. And to be clear, uh, we're not talking about patients who show up in the ED with a stroke, but we're talking about patients that are in the hospital uh, and are suspected of having a stroke. Well, that's right. And as you know, as a practicing neurologist and, and many other caregivers, even who are in the medical field, when patients are already hospitalized and have a catastrophic event or a change in their medical status and their clinical status, uh, that triggers an alarm. So uh, analogous to someone with a rapid response or you know, sudden alteration of consciousness, and, and when you experience that process on the medical side, as a provider, as a clinician, it's very chaotic and disorganized. Depending on where you are, of course, there's different levels of resources, expertise, and uh, processes in place. But if you contrast that with ER level of stroke care and those pathways, those have been so refined over the years because of the clinical trials and because of Uh, the checklist methodology and mentality for us to process quickly and make decisions about treatment. Even though they're the same pathology, you know, they're very, very different processes, very different outcomes, very different patient population, even though it's the same exact type of pathology, which has always intrigued myself and I'm sure many others who practice in neurology. So I'm sure your first steps when you looked into this was doing a literature review and determining what the current state of affairs were. What did you find when you looked into this, trying to evaluate in-hospital stroke? That's a great question. So, you know, when I continued to grow some interest here, uh, we did some preliminary QI work, uh, you know, with our teams to look at this and found that there's a paucity in the literature. In fact, there's very little in the literature outside of some case series and some quality improvement initiatives that address this patient population. 
So that kind of fueled the, the, the desire to uh, work with the American Heart and Stroke Association and, you know, propose, you know, what are some next steps from the AHA to, to move forward with identifying some of these best practices. And that led to the proposal to work with the AHA and um, lead the scientific committee with the, with the team that we have there to put forth the best practices. So I know that uh, I was recently on the hospital service and, yes. you know, saw a number of patients that were suspected of having a, a stroke. And I think, I'm not sure what they do in Florida, but I believe uh, here they call the two clot. And, you know, that initiates a very rapid response on the neurologic service. Uh, right. But what does the data show? Or, or do you have any data looking at the percentage of patients that are thought to have had an inpatient stroke? How many of them actually have a stroke versus the blood sugar's low, they're encephalopathic, some other process? So when you look at the literature, it varies. Um, and uh, what is consistent across a lot of the case series that publish this is the rule of thirds. A third of the time, there is some pathology. Some case series are up to the 40s and 50s percent, and the majority are mimics. Um, and that's not unsurprising. Perhaps the mimic rate in the hospital is a little higher than in the emergency department, only because of the comorbidities and other types of iatrogenic interventions, including medication use and sedatives and other things like that, that can really drive up the quote-unquote mimic rate as compared to someone coming from the field. And do you know what percentage of, of patients uh, in-house would actually get TPA or something like that? Yeah, when you look at the data across the, the case series, it ranges from 2 to 20%. Um, I think those numbers change as the time window and therapeutic windows are changing. We're seeing uh, more uh, interventional treatments, as you know, with the changes of the extended time window to 24. So like I said earlier, I independently uh, looked at just a literature search looking at PubMed to look at the words in-hospital stroke or inpatient stroke, specifically for patients who have a stroke during their hospitalization compared to the body of the literature on the topic of stroke. And it's probably around 2 or 3%. So the overwhelming majority of the data that we have in the, in the, in the world uh, of stroke is, is really not looking at this patient population. But those numbers will continue to change, I think, as we continue to see evolutions in who meets criteria for treatment and the expansion of the time window. Mm -hmm. I, uh, as a little sidebar, I was treating a patient about two years ago for gamma knife, mm -hmm. uh, and the patient lived quite some distance away so they stayed overnight at a hotel close and drove in because we always start early in the morning and pulled into the cancer center. And as they pulled into the cancer center, uh, they became hemiparetic and couldn't speak. Uh, and the red coat came out to get the patient out of the car and the wife goes, you know, he's not able to talk. So they put him in a chair, brought him down to gamma knife. And we had one look at him and thought, oh, my goodness, he's having a stroke. So, of course, we called right. the rapid response team and, and sent them yes. right over to the ED. And, you know, they enacted the stroke protocol. So he's kind of a in-between case, I guess. He's not really, you know, he's not really brought to the ED and he's not really in the hospital. He's sort of the in-between patient. Uh, but he ended up having a proximal IAC stenosis. Wow. And it's really quite interesting because I, it was just before COVID, uh, just in the early days of COVID. And I still wonder since with COVID, we saw some uh, increased risk of 
thrombosis and some proximal. You probably speak to this better than I can. And I really wonder if he had a, a COVID-related uh, proximal uh, clot. So they took him and actually did an intervention where they took the clot out. You know, they sucked the clot out. Yes. Uh, and I ended up seeing him over in the hospital. He did great. He got discharged at the end of the week, had a very small infarct. Uh, and we ended up doing his gamma knife treatment. But for him, you know, if he would have been uh, an hour away, uh, hard to imagine he would have survived. Amazing. Yeah. And, you know, he was just at the right place at the right time. Well, he wasn't actually in a bed in the hospital. You know, it just sort of shows how quickly we can move on yes. some of these cases. And, you know, I like to say that Gamma Knife saved his life, uh, even though it, the Gamma Knife was done for a completely separate reason uh, exactly as that goes right. along. But, you know, it just sort of shows the power of what you guys can do uh, and how you can change people's lives. So I think it's uh, very important that we uh, treat all these patients that need to be treated. And I think, Glenn, that brings us to, to an important point, recognition and, and education. Right. So I was going to get into the uh, actual committee Perfect. guidelines discussion, yeah. which you certainly know a lot about. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about the actual statement and how we should be managing patients in the hospital, what we should be looking out for, those types yes. of things. First and foremost, it was a pleasure working on this, and uh, we had a fantastic multidisciplinary group of neurologists, neurointensivists, neurosurgeon, uh, nursing. So, so we had, you know, uh, even internal medicine on there. Um, so we we really um, did um, a quite a, a diligent effort to try to see what is in the literature. And uh, you know, this is by no means a guideline; it's it's a scientific statement. So it really just outlines evidence based best practices. And I think the core elements that are captured here are five important points. The, the sentinel um, effort around education and recognition of symptoms is the beginning of everything. I think one of the key opportunities across all hospitals, and especially that this is something that is not a high occurrence, it's like low frequency potentially as compared to many other things, but high impact. I would argue that it's Moving out of that low uh, frequency, high impact box and moving into the more frequency, especially now with the complexity of patients we're seeing, expansion of services that are provided in the hospital, the workforce that is available. So we're seeing more and more uh, alerts coming up. But uh, the first and foremost is around education. So the, the first summary recommendation was recognition of symptoms and identifying your high risk patient population. There are some key populations we found that tend to be high-risk populations. And if you look at folks who get some form of vascular procedure, endovascular or open, uh, either cerebrovascular, cardiovascular, or, or vascular in general, that represents about almost half of the majority of the, the, the population at risk. If you add in the critically ill folks, uh, ICU-based folks, um, I think you would hit almost about two-thirds. So when you focus your education and your resources, the high-risk population is going to matter. The second part of the education is adopting a standard tool to identify this. And, you know, we haven't found, at least as of yet, any, any uh, superior methods in hospitals. I mean, I think all hospitals have different protocols, but nothing published as a head-to-head -to, -head to see what's a better uh, screening tool for the nursing staff or some of our colleagues to identify these things. But even a Cincinnati like a, or a BFAST or uh, NIH or a modified NIH is reasonable. But identifying a standard process to identify if someone's having changes and then having some uh, standard cadence and, and uh, defining the right audience to educate. 
So um, the education doesn't end there. Also, the activation process. Uh, you know, what are the protocols for activating? What is the availability? Who are the, who are the key individuals who can do that? And what are the steps that we have? So education, I think, is, is one of the most important areas where um, we can really make a change and start kind of controlling the narrative on um, identifying better and, uh, you know, recognizing. The second part is around rapid response teams. You know, if you look at programs like the Cleveland Clinic and other academic medical centers, there's a different set of resources that are available to us. And you, you shared, you know, they, there's a two-clock protocol and you're on service. There's probably residents and others. But when you look at 6,000 or so hospitals across the country, maybe 27, 28%, less than a third are certified stroke programs. That the majority of our hospitals are community-based. So there, there may not be 24-7 neurology or, or that type of expertise. Uh, so really, as part of the rapid response team, we have to know that it's going to be coming down to what kind of resources are available and then identifying where the gaps are per hospital and per system. I think that's going to be important. The uh, standardization of the response is something we talked about. We shared this in the paper. What potential role uh, the primary nurse would have, the charge nurse and the, and the response team. I think one of the take-home points that comes up again and again, and I had the opportunity to present this at the last stroke conference back in February, is the primary team. You mentioned the mimic rate, and that's indeed high. I think we spend a lot of time trying to figure out why the patient's there, what's the medical history, when they were admitted, what's the story, what meds they're on. There's a lot to decipher uh, as you walk into you know, a situation where someone is having a, a neurologic change. And the presence of the primary team at the bedside can help accelerate that process. And I think as part of the education, one of the recommendations would be if there's a high-risk population and there's a high level of awareness uh, involving the primary team, of course, as soon as they're available, to be that aid in uh, facilitating that information is going to be critical. The um, third part we talked about was standardizing evaluation. I think the fourth part or the fourth key element is addressing the barriers to treatment. And we identified in the paper, uh, there's a table summary about some of the common barriers that we've seen come up that include um, lack of expertise, for example, and how to mitigate that. We talked about some of the opportunities around education, perhaps case simulation, you know, uncertainty about what test to order. So adopting a checklist approach, similar to what you call the two clot or brain attack or stroke code approach that in the ED, adopting a same response in the hospital setting. And then what do you do with patients with non-focal neurologic symptoms? I mean, this is a harder one. And I think it's going to depend on the resources available, the expertise available to be able to either adopt a liberal approach or evaluate more targeted education for the high-risk patient populations. And that, you cannot, you know, paint that all with one brush. I think depending on the hospital setting, resources, and patient population, that should be tailored. And then lastly, you know, you can't change what you can't measure. So we really put forth some you know, foundational work that I hope that the stroke community continues to build some literature on is uh, the quality and oversight. So looking at these individual events, especially the ones that are treatment cases or the ones that were strokes and identifying where the barriers are in terms of delays, what process improvements can happen to accelerate the things that, so we have similar stories like the one that you shared earlier about your patient. And I think a lot of the hangup time is uh, parallel processing not happening in the hospital setting. I think there's a lot of time being wasted. This is just from personal experience, uh, potentially trying to decipher if this is a stroke or a mimic 
and the finding out the history and reviewing the things and then making a decision if you're going to proceed with imaging while we can parallel process and call the transport folks and, and get that information while we're evaluating a patient with that same level of, uh, of certainty and acuity. I, I think that's a synopsis of the five key elements and the takeaways from the paper. You know, I hope that this continues to grow as an area of interest in, uh, for some of our neurologists and non-neurologists as well. Excellent. So as a follow-up to that, unless I'm mistaken, I think that on a yearly basis, I do a My Learning module on identifying uh, stroke. Uh, I'm not sure if the nursing staff is doing that as well, but certainly on the physician level, uh, we do that on a yearly basis. So that's encouraging. Um, You mentioned that, I I think you said two-thirds of the hospitals uh, don't have specific capabilities of uh, in-house neurology for this. What about telemedicine for these groups? Uh, Are hospitals contracting out for telemedicine to try and help? Yeah, so... I think um, the two-thirds is coming from the stroke certification. That's the data when you look at the uh, the percentage of hospitals in the United States that have a stroke certification, you know, by, the, for example, the Joint Commission or something. That may not mean, you know, if they have neurology expertise or not. But I, I will answer the tell you part, and I think we mentioned that in the paper, and that's a great point you pick up. Adopting teleneurology opportunities to evaluate patients in the hospital and then establishing transfer protocols is going to be key. I mean, we just learned of the select two trial results that looked at identifying patients who are candidates for thrombectomy. And we found that patients with large cores and what we would have thought wouldn't be treatment candidates benefit from treatment. So another example where we're going to continue to see a more liberal approach on who we can take for treatment. So I think teleneurology is going to play a big part in improving this area of stroke on the hospital side. And then hospitals identifying that, you know, folks like this who are hospitalized may perhaps need a higher level of care. And around the country, are you seeing adoption of these uh, statements uh, that you mentioned? Yeah, it's hard to say. I think, you know, this came out um, last year. Uh, you know, COVID was sort of at the peak and then was kind of at the tail end. So the first time that the stroke conference was announced, it was, a, it was sort of a, a virtual um, conference. This year was the in-person. So we had the opportunity to present this uh, in person. And we found a very large audience, a lot of uh, insightful questions and uh, starting to see some traction. Just like with everything, there's going to be, you know, adoption curve of the early adopters and then the, the, the late adopters and so forth. I think what the paper is trying to point out is that, A, there should be some best practices on this type of thing, just raising some awareness, just understanding that, you know, the process compared to the ER and the hospitals are different, and just empowering clinicians and physicians from all specialties to have some sort of um, guidance uh, for some uh, best practices as a foundation. I think over the next few years, uh, and I hope months and years, as we see more and more treatment options, that we'll start to see more and more in-hospital stroke uh, papers come out and, and best practices and, and studies that look at this type. Next phases, where do we go from here, other than adopting to more centers? Uh, you know, that's something I think about. I think. I think that um, as time goes on, we'll, we'll see what tools are available for us to identify stroke, radiographic tools, clinical tools, and uh, other sort of monitoring tools for us to identify this. We know from the data consistently that morbidity and mortality is higher. We know the incidence, reported incidence, is somewhere between 25 to 75,000 cases a year in the hospital. That might be an upper, underrepresentation. 
What I hope to see in the future is a little bit of innovation around creating opportunities to monitor folks who are high risk, looking at best practices from the nursing colleagues, from our hospital colleagues outside of neurology as well, who have interest in this. I think the rapid response type model, being it cardiac, being it you know, respiratory, being it neuro, you know, something that is a, is a strong quality driver for hospitals across the country. And what I'm hoping is just to make sure that, you know, for in-hospital stroke, this is a, an important quality driver that, you know, needs to have the same level of importance and, and attention, just like some of the other quality measures in hospitals. Excellent. Before we conclude, any departing advice you'd like to share with our peers uh, who might look to adopt some of the elements from the statement? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, I I appreciate the opportunity for our listeners to hopefully uh, gain some of the uh, insights here. I think one of the key things is I would love to encourage um, our our listeners and others who read this and adopt some of these best practices to report back. I think we learn more when we uh, when we see best practices being adopted and shared and tested. And then, you you know, in nursing conferences, in the stroke conferences, in the literature, in the QI uh, journals, uh, really share best practices. If someone's out there doing this and doing this well, it would be great to share that for the larger community and the larger medical community. So my, you know, parting words of advice or wisdom would be for those who are in this space and have this interest to you know, try to give back by sharing those best practices so we can build upon this body of literature and improve the outcomes for everybody we serve. I think another area just to mention is the uh, unknown unknowns is, uh, you know, as the stroke world is evolving and we're seeing more adoption of uh, liberal approaches to treating patients, I think one of the areas to to kind of look at it would be interesting is, is to see how we can do more with less. I think the telemedicine point that you brought up is going to be key. So those in the tele-stroke space and the tele-neurology space, we don't have a lot of uh, data on that. I think that would be something that would be great to see how frequently is this happening across the country and uh, what is the role of tele-neurology going to be moving forward outside of just the acute phase in the ER, but in the hospital setting. Well, Amri, I appreciate your joining me today and I look forward to seeing how we all better serve these patients in the future and uh, hopefully this important initiative will be adopted across the country and will continue to uh, save lives and uh, decrease uh, morbidity. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Glenn. appreciate the opportunity. This concludes this episode of Neuro Pathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.